I'm so grateful to, to share the platform like this. I, I have a responsibility of, of preaching the next four Sundays. And so like, I've got like this marathon mindset in front of me right now. And so like, I have all the energy in the world right now because I got to go to Canada to fish my annual fishing trip. And for those of you who are like, fishing is so lame. Well, guess what? Jesus fished, right? Jesus fish, he was a fisher of fish and a fisher of men. So as I was catching fish in Canada, I was reminded that like what we do is really we fish for human beings. That's what we do. We fish for human beings, and it's so important that we get God's gospel in front of all ears, in front of all faces, and in, in all homes, because we have the only message on planet Earth that can transform someone from the inside out. Amen? That's it. It's only the gospel. It's only by the name of Jesus that someone can be made new again and come alive. Otherwise, what are we doing? It's all about Jesus' transformative message of his death and resurrection. And that is why we gather every weekend. And I, I'm just so amped up and like ready to go this morning because we're diving into a brand new collection of teachings in the book of 1 Corinthians. And the book of 1 Corinthians is, is all, we've never done this as a church before. But we're treating the book of 1 Corinthians uh, kind of like a library. And instead of walking through it in a linear narrative approach, we're going to like extract the major themes from the book of 1 Corinthians. Because what was happening to the church in, in Corinth is happening to churches today. It, it really is indicative of that the human heart really has not changed over the generations. And how every human being, every heart, every generation is equally in need of Jesus. Amen. There's not been like one superior generation that like figured it all out and nor is it going to be ours. Like we are all equally desperately in need of Jesus. And so when Paul writes this letter to the church in Corinth, he's writing this letter to a group of, of Christians. Paul planted this church in Corinth and Corinth might as well have been to Greece what New York City is to the USA. Okay, is that in your head now? An epicenter for economic trade, right? the birthplace of culture, cultural trends, music, philosophy, art, all the things would have emerged from a, from a city like Corinth. And so Paul is all gutsy and plants a church in Corinth. Like, like some faith-filled man or woman goes and plants a, a church from the seed in New York City. That's what Paul did in Corinth. And then he's like, all right, you guys got this. I'm out. And so Paul leaves. Whether that was a good call or a bad call is not really the point, but he leaves. And then the church begins to succumb to the very cultural pressures of the city that it resided in, even though the church was supposed to be so attractive that it would have drawn the lost, so powerful that it would influence the culture of the city that it existed in, but that's not what happened. And so what Paul does is he writes them this letter, and he kind of acknowledges like a good amount of themes that he addresses. Throughout, throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. They're not really dependent on one another, so that's why we're going to treat them like a library and pick out what we need throughout the next seven weeks. But, but here's the big idea. I want to give you the big idea up front. The big idea is that the gospel of Jesus, the power of that gospel to transform a community of believers, to transform a community, to sing out God's praises, to live on mission, the power of that is so potent, it has the power to influence the secular, ungodly world around it. So instead of the church being influenced by the culture around it, the culture becomes influenced by the church, the people of God. 
And Paul is writing to these believers in 1 Corinthians, and he addresses these major themes, and he says this, and he says this, and he says this, and he, and he gets after them about these different things, and he is calling them to rally around some of these very, very important themes and causes in the book of 1 Corinthians. And I believe that at the end of our six or seven weeks together, that we will see a church that has a renewed resolve, a renewed conviction for what we do, fresh power from the Holy Spirit, new, new resolve, new conviction in the power of God's word, in the power of God's spirit, to live on mission in our community, to be present with those who are hurting and lost and outcast. I believe that this church is in this part of town for a very specific reason, because of our ability to reach a wide area of life. We've got people driving down from Sheridan and Lebanon and further. We're leeching people from downtown. Our ability, this unique church's unique ability to be a diverse culture, a diverse congregation is kind of limitless simply just because of our proximity. Now, let's get the hearts of the people caught up with the reality of our proximity. Let's get our people rallied and excited about reaching the culture, influencing the culture around us for the sake of Jesus. Is anybody with me today? The New Testament church was far from perfect. I, I, had, this, I had this well-meaning person walk up to me years and years ago, and this person came up to me, and they said, Pastor Luke, we need to get back to the early church. I was like, I, dude, I totally agree. We need to get back to the early church. Let's do that. What's that mean? <laughs> what's, what's that mean? And then years of study in the early church have revealed one thing. The early church was so messed up. Like, so messed up. They had so many problems, guys. Like, all the capital P problems in the world. Like, all the early church was full of issues and, and problems. And here I stand in 2023, having spent years studying the early church. I'm like, oh, dude, I'll take the church today, thanks. Like, seriously, like, I'm glad we're past the early church. Now, I know what this person intended to mean. I know what they, they meant by that, but it, it's kind of humorous and it reveals something, right? It reveals like this, like, we need to get back to what's important to me. We need to get back to the thing that I've got this conviction on, this, this preference that I have, this, this whatever. And it, it reveals something about the human spirit and the human condition is that when people say, especially when Christians, and I've said it too, it's like, we need to get back to that thing that's so important. It's like, well, what thing that was so important? That thing that divided us? That thing that caused us to trip up? Oh, that, that thing that caused quarrels? We need, to get, we need to get the pews back in the room, Luke. It's like, okay, I mean, okay, if you want to, if you want to write the check for it, fine. Like, we, if, pews are expensive, man. Like, you want pews? All right. We need hymnals back in the room, Luke. I'm like, okay, that's, that's fine. You can buy them if you want to. We'll put them out there. Maybe. Maybe. Luke, we need to go back to the early church. I, this person, they, they met well. They met well. But the, but the early church, I'm telling you, church family, the early church had so many problems. And one of the problems that was happening in the city of Corinth is that this church plant in this epicenter of economic trade and cultural birth, 
all this culture was, was born from. They couldn't handle it. They, they just couldn't handle the pressures on the outside coming in. And, and they needed this ongoing encouragement to steer away from waywardness. And this, this group of well-meaning Christians in the city of Corinth just could not handle the pressure of, of the culture around them. And, and the thing about Corinth, again, it was, you know, in Greece what New York City is in USA today. But you got to understand that, like, the Greco-Roman Empire, that was, that was the epicenter, the birthplace of philosophy. And so one of the primary reasons that these Christians in Corinth would succumb to this, this pressure on the outside moving inwards toward them is because Corinth was full of philosophical people and wise people that all wanted to share their wisdom and philosophies. And you know what that tells me? Nothing has changed. In the advent of social media where everybody gets a platform and everybody gets a mic, people start sharing wisdom not capital W wisdom, like lowercase w wisdom, and it leads people going down a road that Jesus never walked down. Here, here's, what, here's what Paul was doing. He was pleading, begging the Christians in, in Corinth, keep your eyes focused on Jesus. Keep your eyes on the prize, and the prize is Jesus. Make sure you make the main thing the main thing, and the main thing is Christ crucified and resurrected from the grave. And that was the the main thing. Let me ask you this question before we dive into the passage this morning. It's been running my mouth today. I'm so sorry. Is the church in Indianapolis in better condition than that of the church in Corinth? Let that question just like, I don't know, sit on your spirit as we just jump into the rest of these passages and talk about it and unpack it and apply it this morning. Is the church in Indianapolis in better condition than that of the church in, in Corinth? I'll let, you just, I'll let you answer that question as we, as we dive in. Because the kingdom of God and his church will be so attractive to the lost and will be so powerful in, in, in a city when the people of God are unified around the man, the God, Jesus Christ. This is what 1 Corinthians starting in verse 1 says. It'll be on the screens to my right and my left. I want to encourage you, all of you, to always have either your Bible with you or your Bible app open, ready to go every Sunday morning because I don't got anything to say that the Word of God doesn't already say much more powerfully anyway. And so I want to make sure that you come in prepared. So make sure you have your paper Bible ready to go or your Bible app open and ready to go on, our, on your Bible app, the Version app. You can actually select Mercy Road Church Northwest as your home church, and we can like befriend each other on, our, on the church app. Isn't that cool? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 10, it says this. This is the word of God. It says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. I just want to pause there and just be like, Paul, you are so idealistic. Like, that is ever going to happen. Are you serious, man? Okay, verse 11. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another says, I follow Cephas. And then another says, I follow Christ. Can I just pause and make fun of us for a second? I swear, if Paul was here today, 
in this church service, at this local congregation, I bet you anything, he would come up here, grab the mic for me and say, some of you say, I follow Billy Graham. Some of you say, I follow T.D. Jakes. I follow Priscilla Shire. I follow Beth Moore. I follow blank, blankety blank. And come up with every celebrity star influencer you can think of. Not that those are bad people. Those are great people. But Paul's point is our susceptibility to follow human over divinity is quite high. And so Paul is calling them out immediately saying like, wait, wait a second. What do you mean some of you follow Apollo? Some of you follow Paul? Some of you follow Steve? What, what do you mean by that? That's a bunch of a nonsense. And I don't think anything has changed in the hearts and minds of the people of God. Because the power of someone to speak or lead someone's ministry that we resonate with, some sexy YouTube preacher that we're just like, that's my man, that's my gal, I love them. I could listen to them for days. Some, some leader in a, in a certain part of the kingdom that you resonate with or relate with theologically, you're like, yeah, that's the person because they, they, they die on that hill, that's the hill I die on. And, and the human susceptibility to follow a human leader and take your eyes off Jesus And Paul gets into this, and he gets into it hard. What Paul is getting at here is he's asking, he's he's looking at the church he planted in Corinth, and he's like, how did this church that I planted get so off track? So off track that their first response was a four-way division. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, and Christ. Wait a second, what? All y'all should be following Christ. What do you mean? Well, one answer is that they were living in Corinth. And remember what I said, Corinth was the birthplace of philosophy. Greece was the birthplace of philosophy. And so you've got wise, well-educated people in Corinth who are sharing their wisdom and philosophy, and it may have had the gospel of Jesus in it, and it maybe did not have the gospel of Jesus in it. And maybe they had a good pure agenda, but maybe they didn't have a good pure agenda. I mean, let's be honest. Do we really, really know some of the people that we resonate with most, especially if we've never met them? It's like we just see the best version of the people we admire the most. But we are all equally sinners before the throne of grace and all in need of Jesus, amen? We all need Jesus equally, I'm not up here slamming or throwing shade at influential leaders in the kingdom of God. We need bold women and men to step up and share the gospel of Christ in every context and in every way. The church, the academy, the marketplace, the communities, all the things, schools, everywhere. We need people doing that. But Paul is specifically pointing out that, wait a second, you all are divided because your eyes came off of Jesus. You're divided because your eyes were put on that really, really charismatic leader that you got all pumped up about. And that's not a bad thing to be influenced by that person, but it's a bad thing to be influenced that person over over Jesus. And so Paul's all bothered about this. And so he basically points out this reality that (laughs) 
Here's the thing about Paul, Cephas, uh, Apollos. Those three, they all preached the same Jesus. They all preached the same Jesus of Nazareth died on the cross, resurrected from the grave. They all had unique ministries in the kingdom of God. They, they were literally, quite literally, all saying the same thing. So, so, so what does that tell you? That tells you that the house of Chloe, poor, that poor household, right? Like, wouldn't you hate for your last name or first name household to be remembered in the Bible of like <laughs> the people that <laughs> were divided? Praise God, right? That's not your name. Whatever was happening in the house of Chloe, that they were all divided about these different human leaders, it tells you one thing. It tells you that they were divided on preferences. Because Apollos and Cephas and Paul all had identical ministries. They all preached the same Jesus, all preached the same Jesus in basically the same city in context, and had all unique nuances. It's the nuances we get, we get all excited about, isn't it? It's, it's preferences. It's preferential treatment that, that we get really pumped up about. That church or that leader, man, they wear a suit and tie every time. Like, that's my gal. That's my guy. That church, they, 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 don't, they don't have loud speakers. They have just a violin. They have just a piano, and that's my thing. That church has pews without cushions. Like, I want my rear to go numb. Like, that is my thing. That's where I want to be. And, and most of our divisions, I don't think, are actually ideological. I think they're preferential. I think the, the reason that Christians typically fight with each other is not because we don't believe that Jesus is the answer and the hope of the world. It's because we all like the peripherals more than the bullseye target of Jesus. We're way more interested in what it smells like, looks like, sounds like, tastes like, than who he is. And he is God, of God, Alpha, Omega, beginning and end. It is only by the name of Jesus that one can experience transformative renewal salvation. Not Paul, not Cephas, not Apollos. Not T.D. Jakes, not Billy Graham, not Priscilla Stryer, not Beth Moore, not blankety blank. Not Mo- I, I, start thinking of all the people you love in your head. Not by their names, by Jesus' name. So what happens when preferential treatment takes center stage? Well, I'll tell you what happens. It, uh, it, it creates infighting and bickering, and it typically goes like this. Um, oh, no, we really need to preserve this. I'm right. You're wrong. I, I want to point out to you that the house of Chloe was divided, and that culture ultimately was not influential to the community and to the city that that church resided in, I want to point out that the culture of disunity is fueled by that comment of I'm right and you're wrong. That's how disunity is fueled. When Christians can't agree and when Christians can't link arms, it comes from I'm right and you're wrong. Even though most of the time we're probably not right. And I know that I just want to repent in front of you and say, like, the the times that I've gotten all frustrated and bothered about certain things is because they were preferential. And I think that if you really took stock of your life right now and you really examined your own life and you really examined your own heart, most of the time we have a, a hidden agenda. And most of the time it takes the spirit of the living God to reveal that agenda to you. Like, your, your heart is, is so good at misleading you. Like, your heart is so perfectly suited 
to, 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 to lead you in, in an area, in a way that you actually don't desire deep down. And that's why our hearts need to be reacquainted with and re, reconnected with the living God each and every day through prayer and through study and through confession and through worship and through these disciplines, through service and missional living so that our, our motives and our intents can be purified by the fire of God. And I, I know that all of us want to have pure motives and all of us want to have pure intentions, but here's the problem with pure motives and pure intentions. We cannot purify our own motives. Only God's power, presence, and provision can correct and purify our intentions and motives. You could be doing the right thing now, but you could be doing it for the wrong reasons. Only God can fix that. Only God can fix that. So if a, if a church is, is disabled by the preferences that it all prefers, the church will not be the unstoppable institution that God intends for it to be. But when a community of God surrounds itself in the name and the power of Jesus and keeps their eyes focused on that one God-man, on that one name, that church is unstoppable. That church can go places. That church will break through to their, to their city. In verse 13, Paul calls out the house of Chloe, right, and asks them three pretty potent questions. He asks them three, these three questions in verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Let's address that first question there. Is Christ divided? Okay, all of us have had some experience in church, even if this morning is your first time ever stepping foot in a church service. And I'm so grateful for you to be here. I hope that the Spirit of God encounters you powerfully today. But I grew up in a Methodist church. Do you know what that Methodist minister said from the platform? He said, Jesus is the only way to God. He said, that Jesus died on the cross and resurrected from the grave. Now, that Methodist church, man, I'll tell you, he was wearing that sweet robe with that, that like, scarfy thing. And that, like, dude, that scarf looks so dope. And, like, I'm telling you, I might bring out that scarf one day. Like, seriously. Like, bring on the scarves. Scarf church, let's go, okay? He had the robe, he had the scarf, and there was, like, the hymns. And my grandmother, who's, like, 102 today, but, like, back then she was much younger, she played, like, the organ. And that thing was awesome. Like, it shook the room, dude. It was so sweet. It was so sweet. And then I went to a Baptist church one time, like, holy Baptist. Like, if you've ever been to a Baptist church before, my gosh. Like, they'll, they'll rip the chairs off the floor. Like, the, the dance party is real. Seriously, Baptist churches are fire. Okay. And then I went to a Vineyard Charismatic Church one time when I was traveling abroad in New Zealand. And, dude, I mean, I don't even know what I went to, but the whole place got turned upside down. And, and, and people were just, like, consumed by the Spirit, and there was all kinds of power in the room. And I wasn't quite sure if it was real or not. And, like, the whole thing was just amazing. And then I've been to a Catholic Mass. And the Catholic Mass, you know, you know what they do? There's like this very like respectful like air in the room. There, there's, there's some like physical practices that accompany spiritual realities. 
I've heard a Catholic priest, I've heard a vineyard pastor from the charismatic movement, I've heard a Methodist, I've heard a Baptist, I've heard all of those kinds of leaders and pastors all say that Jesus is the only way to God. I've heard all of them say Jesus died on the cross and resurrected from the grave. Let's keep the main thing, the main thing, which is Christ and Christ crucified, amen? That is the only message that can change someone from the inside out. I don't care if you dance. I hope you do. Like, I don't care if Pastor Nick wears a robe and a scarf next time. Maybe he will. I don't know. Like, I, I, honestly, I don't care. All I care about is that we are united around the name of Jesus Christ. Because by his name, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow that he is Lord. And that is how a city gets transformed by a local church. I don't care what you're into, be into Jesus. You hear me? Second question. Was Paul crucified for you? Was Paul crucified for you? No one has ever done what Jesus has done for us. No human man, no human woman. No one has voluntarily suffered for the sake of the world like Jesus has. And perhaps a, a mother in childbirth would be glad to give her life to make sure her child would come into the world. Sure. Perhaps a father would gladly uh, give his life for the sake of his family or his children. Sure. But no mother, no father, no parent would give their lives for a whole slew of children, and one of those children weren't theirs. Only God has done for us what only God can do for us. Paul was not crucified. No other woman, no other man was been, has been crucified for us. Sure, they were crucified on the cross for the horrible Roman uh, death. It was shameful. It was awful. It was, it was not looked at as a symbol of hope. It was looked at as a symbol of death and shame and despair and destruction. It was, it was, it was reserved. It was the worst kind of death reserved to humiliate and to shame. And only God's power can take that symbol and turn it into a symbol of hope and salvation and, and, and godliness. No one has done for the community of believers, no one has done for the world what God has done for the world in Jesus. And I don't, I don't care like who you are, what part of town you're from. I don't care what kind of church you grew up in. I don't care if you did not grow up in a church and you're just like, just getting it like, oh, I'm here at church because a friend invited me. Like, Jesus died for you. And Jesus loves you so much. And you are on his mind, brother, daughter. You are on his mind. And the cross of Christ is proof of that. You are important to him. He loves you dearly. He loves you so much. He doesn't want to leave you where you are. He suffered voluntarily because of his great and deep love for you. I don't know how that hits you. I don't know if that's a message that will transform you this morning, but it ought to. Because no one else will ever do for you what Jesus has done for you. No one else could do for you what Jesus has done for you lived a perfect life, lived a human life so that he could relate to us. And often it is hard for us to relate to him. And you don't have to understand it to accept it. And so I just want to call on anyone in the room right now that doesn't know Jesus as their personal Savior and Lord. He loves you. He's inviting you into a relationship with him. He's inviting you into a relationship with his community, his church.
And I just want to empower you and encourage you to accept that invitation. God loves you. God loves you so much. And the person you're into, that, that YouTube preacher, that, that the author of the book that you read, like they can't, they won't, they never will be crucified for you. I'm glad you like them. I've got my peeps too. I'm glad I like them, but they are not on the same level as Jesus. Don't let yourself get distracted from Christ. Don't let your eyes come off of Jesus. Final question of Paul's, he says, were you baptized in the name of Paul? Can we just play a little game? Have you guys ever played Never Have I Ever? I think I played that once on the school bus in elementary school. I want to play it again this morning as a 37-year-old grown man, okay? Okay, here we go. Never have I ever been in the baptistry baptizing someone and saying, because of your confession of faith, I'm going to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Apostle Paul. Never. Never. Because Paul and Apollos and Cephas and the person you're into and the person I'm into that we resonate with and that we relate with, you can't be baptized in their name. They don't have that power and authority in your life. Only Jesus, only Jesus, God of God, has the power in your life. That name never expires. Have you noticed that? You can sing Jesus' name over and over again. You can speak Jesus' name over and over again, and you never get tired of it. Your tongue never gets fatigued. You just keep saying Jesus over and over and over again, and you never tire out. It's because his name is power. And his death and resurrection is power. And when you're baptized into the water and pulled up out of the water, you're symbolically participating in his death and resurrection, associating yourself with him. Don't let any preferences distract you from the face of Jesus. He finishes off here in verse 14. He says this. He says, I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. It's almost like he had like a lapse in memory or something. It's like, okay, okay, I did baptize a couple more of y'all. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. Well, good. Paul's essentially saying like, I ain't keeping record of this because it's not about me. I have no record of this. I, I, I can't not recall all the people I baptized because I'm really not even here to baptize. Look at what he says in verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Here's my guess. My guess that is if Paul was here today and he preached, just like all of our favorite people, uh, authors, uh, YouTubers, uh, you know, famous megachurch leaders, whatever, my guess is that he would be one of the worst preachers of all time. That's my guess. You know why? Because we've had a couple thousand years of like platform communication refinement, like lots of training. Like this mic helps me, right? Doesn't he didn't have a mic? He just had the cross of Christ. That's it. That's it. And that cross of Christ, that the name of Jesus, that the power, the presence of God in that church plant in the city of Corinth was the power that that church needed to become the church that would influence Corinth and reach the lost, disciple the found, send out the saved, 
bring about missional activity in their community, be united regardless of preference around the name of Jesus. Paul knew one thing. He knew to major on the major and minors on the minors. That has to make sense to us today. If you went on to higher education, you maybe got like a major and maybe you got a minor, right? You understand that. And, and, and most of us are like, well, I didn't use either. It's like, okay, I get that too. But I got a minor in P.E. I know it's funny, but it was like the easiest minor you could get. A lot of us right now are majoring in the minors. Do you get it? We're getting super frustrated and bothered about the things that don't really matter in eternity. They don't really matter in eternity. Maybe you're like passionate about it today. That's cool, but they don't really matter for the long haul. Don't let the leaders you relate with, the churches you get pumped up about, distract you from the name of of Jesus. And as we've talked about, I really don't think that um, it's ideology. Maybe like 5% out of 100, maybe it's ideology that separates and divides people along, along lines. I think it's preference because I've heard it the most. Most things that come my way in my role are preferentially based mostly because of background, upbringing, family of origin, things you're passionate about. So for the next couple minutes, I've got a few more minutes left of this, right? I'm just going to make fun of us ruthlessly today, okay? And I'm going to use a Venn diagram. Who likes a good Venn diagram, right? Come on, people that like to teach. Venn diagrams are my jam. Look at that. That is a beautiful Venn diagram. Okay, throughout the church age, there have traditionally been three types or kinds of churches that have emerged throughout the church age. What I mean by church age is like after Jesus resurrected from the grave, hung out with the disciples, then ascended to heaven to be with Jesus, right? Or excuse me, to be with God, rather. Um, at that, the, Everything following that is the church age, okay? Everything following that's the church age. So we are still currently in and living in the church age. So we are literally living history right now, which is pretty cool. Okay, in that church age, there's been three major kinds of churches that have emerged. And I will say, it does take all kinds of churches to reach all kinds of people. I ain't against that. That's not what I'm saying this morning. What I am saying is that these three kinds of churches have unintentionally competed with each other for rights to be the one only church. And that's what I'm going to call out here this morning. The first kind of church is what I would call the doctrinal church. These people are my favorite. You know why? Because they carry a Bible the size of a briefcase, right? And they walk in and they've got like a lexicon with them and a dictionary. And they're like, that's not what it means in the Greek. Like they just, what they'll do is they'll like take everything you say and weigh it against not just scripture, but like eons of commentaries, theological commentaries and dictionaries. Like those are my people. I love those people. You should test everything anyone says ever from this platform and any other platform, media or or whatever, for sure. I love doctrinal people because they'll say, you just need to preach the word. I'll be like, yeah, just preach the word. Nothing else matters. That's my, that's my jam. Their emphasis is the word. And I'm all for that, man. I am all for the living, breathing word of God. The emphasis is the word of God. The emphasis is the Bible. And that is the doctrinal style 
church. I ain't calling out any names or any churches. All you have to do is meditate on it for a second. Who comes to mind when I say doctrinal church? Don't answer out loud. We're not here to throw shade, okay? Just think about it for a hot second. The doctrinal church. The word-emphasized church. Here's the next kind of church that has emerged in, during the church age. is the attractional church. Now, I love the attractional church because the attractional church is attractive because the church should be attractive. These, these people are great. These people are like, Luke, we need to focus on the lost. We need to be reaching out to the community. I'm like, yeah, we should. We absolutely should be reaching out to the community. We should let this city know that we are for them. We got we to gotta relate to the lost. We got to make sure that we, we speak the language of the lost so we can get the gospel into the hearts of the lost. We got to make sure that we are in a, an attractional church. These people, these people are like, these people will join the host team without asking if they can join the host team. They're like, we got to smile and make sure every single person that walks in this place is immediately encountered by the living, breathing God. And I'm like, yeah, come on, let's go. I love this. Their emphasis is the lost. The attractional church's emphasis is the lost. The doctrinal church's emphasis is the word. Now, I want you to take a second and think about how different of an experience a doctrinal church is versus that of an attractional church. Both of these have got their pros and cons. Every church has their pros and cons. Every Christian has a pros and cons. But if you think about it for a second, you can think about how different of an environment a doctrinal church is that than that of an attractional church. Now, the third church that has emerged during the church age, remember we're talking about three major kinds, okay, is the charismatic church. Now, this is my jam because... People that like grew up in the charismatic church or like feel pumped up by the charismatic church, like typically they emphasize things like like uh, the gifts of the spirit. Uh, I'm all about that. We're all about that here. But like you want someone who resonates with the charismatic church to pray for you. You know why? Because someone in the doctrinal church that prays for you is like, let's open up God's word together. And the living word says this, Lord, we ask this for this person. Someone in the charismatic church would be like, God, do it now. In the power of Jesus and the power of the Spirit, do it now. We believe it for today. Like, they just call heaven down. Like, you want someone in the charismatic church to pray for you. Your whole life will change just like that, okay? Their emphasis is the Spirit. I want you to think about how different a charismatic church is from a doctrinal church, how different a doctrinal church is that from an attractional church, and how different an attractional church is different from a charismatic church. And we wonder why we get divided about preferential things. Because I have been to all three of those churches, and every single one of those churches says that Jesus is the only way, and that Jesus died on the cross for the world, and that Jesus rose from the grave beating the power of death. And that he's invited us into a relationship with him to participate in his mission. Every single church that I've been a part of, doctrinal, attractional, or charismatic, has said those things. That's it. So what's the goal? The goal is right in the middle. The goal is right smack dab in the middle there where you see that check mark. 
Let me get really, really clear if I can for a second here. You, you trust me this morning enough to be here and allow these words to be washed over your life. Can I just share with you and get really clear about what kind of church we are? We are a word-anchored, mission-driven, spirit-led and filled church. Is that enough for you today? Is that enough? Are we a word anchored? I sure hope so. I sure hope that we are using God's word and only God's word to teach anything in this place. Amen? Like the second someone gets up here and uses something besides God's word to teach you, I want you to run out of here so fast. We will only always ever use the living, breathing sword of the spirit. Come on. The word of God. We are a word anchored church. And we are a mission-driven church. We're not a country club. We don't get cozy and comfortable. We're ready for those who are hungry and thirsty, who want to meet and get to know Jesus. We are ready to be a kind of people who are welcoming to the environment, the community around them, and bring them into a warm, welcoming, unified people of God who calls out on Jesus to anchor them, center them, and unify them. Like, we're not going to trick people into following Jesus. Like, come to service this weekend and enter a raffle for a free iPad. Like, we're not doing that, dude. We're just not. We're just not. An attractional church is a unified church. You want to be attractive to your community, to your cul-de-sac, to your neighborhood? Keep Jesus in the forefront of your heart and mind. Keep him as the main thing. Him and him crucified. The rest of it will flow from that centering, anchoring place. We can be an attractional church that's convicted about the lost in our city. We're a word anchored, we're a mission driven, and we are a spirit filled and spirit led church. There's no power without the Holy Spirit, there's no change without the Holy Spirit, there's no transformation without the Holy Spirit. Everything is done in vain if it's done in human power. If it's done in God power, Holy Spirit power, it's all done for the right reasons. And it's done to see people meet this man, God named Christ. We are spirit-led. We are spirit-filled church. So if anyone ever asks you, like, hey, don't you go to that church there off like 465 in that part of town? Like, oh, yeah, that's, that's my home church. Like, what kind of church is it? Now you'll know what to say. You'll be like, oh, yeah, we're like a word-anchored, mission-driven, spirit-filled, and led church. Come on, you got this. Like, you can't screw this up now. Like, you've got this. You've got this. What's Paul's big idea? I'm going over time here. Culture of unity is fueled by let's seek Jesus together. Come on. Come on. I'm, I'm going to skip my last point and share a story. So this is the cue for the band to come back up. I don't know where you guys are at, but I'm going to share this story because I think it's just so powerful. I thought about this morning, actually. I didn't plan for it. I just want to share it with you. Okay, so a unified church, a church that seeks Jesus together, is a church that keeps Jesus in the center of their hearts and minds, right? We've, we're, we've talked about that all morning now for 40 minutes. I showed you the Venn diagram. We had some fun. We laughed. We had a good time, right? I, I want to circle back to about maybe like four or five months ago. We had our communion meal Sunday, and I saw this couple sitting alone at communion. They didn't look like me. They weren't from my part of town, but I saw them, and I was just like, they're sitting alone. Well, I mean, I'm a pastor. I should probably just go sit with them, right? (laughs) 
I love Jesus. I probably should just go sit with him. So I went down and I sat with him. And you know what was so cool about this moment? This couple, I shared communion with them. We shared prayer together. We shared a, a word of thanksgiving and praise. And then I got to talking to this guy. And this guy's like into all the same things I'm into. I'm like, thank you, Lord. Like, this is awesome. He was into this. He was into that. I'm like, my dude, this is so great. He likes rabbit hunting. I'm like, my man, like teach me your ways. You know, that sounds really awkward and weird, but like, come on. So I'm talking to this guy. He's telling me about all of his hunting and fishing. And I'm like, dude, tell me what you know. Tell me what you know. So we get to talking. We get talking. And we talk for like the next like half hour about all these things. And I reflected back on that this morning. And I'm like, wait a second. This guy and I are not from the same part of town. This guy and I don't look like each other. But this guy and I found out that we care about the most important thing, which is Jesus. That he and I cared about Jesus. We acknowledged that that was the centering point. And then after that, we discovered how much more we had in common. Come on now. There are those of you in this room right now that think you disagree with someone else in this room, that think you disagree with someone else in your workplace, or think that you disagree or you're divided along lines in some other thing. Dude, I'm telling you, if they love Jesus with all of their heart, their soul, and their mind, you're going to find out that you have more in common with them than you maybe thought. And it's going to take you to live courageously, to cross lines of comfort, to engage, wholeheartedly engage with other human beings. Like this, this community of God right here, like no one, come on, no one should ever be sitting alone in service. No one should ever be sitting alone at community meals. Never. You know why? Because it's likely they're here looking for Jesus just like you. So maybe just in a spirit of confession and repentance this morning, we as a community can just repent of this notion of like, we're not enough alike to talk. We're just, we're, we're too different for, we're from different parts of town, backgrounds, upbringings. I don't know. A unified church is an unstoppable church in Jesus' name. Come on. I know that some of you this morning think that you've got nothing else in common with that person sitting next to you or the row in front of you or the row behind you, but you do because they love Jesus and they want to grow in Jesus. May you live a courageous fall this fall and put yourself out there and sit proverbially, metaphorically, literally sit with those at the table to find out that you're way more unified than you thought you were. God, we call on your name right now in prayer. What a joy it is to come together and sing your songs and read your word. And man, we're just thankful for the energy in the room this morning. I can just sense that you want to bring in us a renewed conviction, a renewed conviction of unity. God, may we be a community, may we be a church that's not influenced by the culture around us more than we can influence the culture around us. May we be unified in Jesus' name. May we be a word-anchored, mission-driven, spirit-led and filled congregation who's got resolve 
a renewed sense of resolve, a renewed sense of conviction for the mission that you've entrusted us to facilitate in this part of town, in this state. We know we're not here by accident. We know you've got us here on purpose. We know that you've given each one of us a unique amount of giftings and talents and callings and passions. May nothing on the peripheral, may no preference of ours ever create a dividing line with our brother or sister who loves you desperately too. May we keep the main thing, the main thing. You, Jesus, crucified, resurrected, reigning in power. You are worthy of all of our worship, all of our praise, all of our thanksgiving. We retire and repent of all of our self-sufficiency, all of our pride, all of our ego. We bring it to you in the name of Jesus at your feet. Ask that you would purify us by your fire, create in us new motives, new intentions, renew our conviction to keep you in our eyes. So God, in these final songs, do your miraculous transformative work by your spirit in this place. May this place become a place of attraction to the lost. May this place be an anchored place because of your word. May this place be a spirit-filled place because people are so lost in your presence that the gifts of the spirit just come out naturally, Lord Jesus. We pray for more. Would you create in us the ability to withstand the pressure of added growth? Lord God, we call upon your name and your name only. And the church in Indianapolis together passionately says, Amen.